hope that you guys are just rocking out the fall time right now. So I know I led into this a little bit in the last episode, but you know, I wrote a very controversial, one of my most viewed blog posts a while ago, and it had to do with why we don't pray for them. So why we do not pray during the stable moments sessions. And a lot of that blog article, you can go read it on the stable moments website, but it was mainly so that I could let people understand that these kids have suffered trauma and they may have lived in poor, bad, neglectful, abusive situations for a really long time. And they may have spent a lot of time praying where they felt like it didn't work for them. Uh, We've had plenty of kids come into the program that feel like God doesn't love them or that God didn't answer their prayers or that prayer doesn't work for them. So it can be extremely triggering uh, when a mentor sees a kid that's getting a service and says, you know, hey, can I pray for you? Just because we've had amazing uh, experiences with prayer doesn't mean that other people have, and we need to be really cognizant of that. And so really, I encourage mentors to be the hands and feet of Jesus or to um, really bring that essence through their actions rather than the active activity of praying during sessions. Now, I've reread that article and I'm like, I was a little rough there. I was, I, I really hit this home hard. And obviously it doesn't mean that you can't pray for kids, um, not in session and that you can't, you know, hold prayer time to uplift these kids. So when today's guest reached out, I was so excited because it allows me to circle back and kind of address some of the concerns people had about that blog post. Now, stable moments sessions do not, they don't have any religious affiliation, right? We need to stay completely open uh, to serve everybody. Every child in foster care, you don't need to uh, subscribe to a certain religion or spirituality or spiritual practice. But there are plenty of people that do, right? So for those people, and for those people where God has actually called them to this work, Uh, We want to make sure that there's a place for people like that because that is so often where our mentors and program directors come from. And it might be what called you here to this podcast and and to serve your community. So uh, Jackie reached out to me and she is the founder of Ignite Hope. Uh, She's the CEO and Ignite Hope is strategic prayer for orphan care. That's what her ministry is about. So literally praying for kids in foster care. So when uh, her assistant originally reached out, I said, you know, I will have you on this podcast because I love having brave conversations, but um, have you read this blog post, like why we don't pray for them? And I sent it along and, um, you know, Jackie read it and said, no, I think that this is completely aligned. And I think that there's a way to talk about praying that doesn't trigger a child. So Jackie is a former foster child. She's an international adoptee and she's a mother to adoptive and biological children alike. She's a passionate advocate for the right of every child to have a safe family and executes this calling by speaking within the church and legislatively on the ways that we can all impact the plight of vulnerable children. She got her bachelor's degree in journalism and communication and she also went on 
to get um, another bachelor's degree in elementary education. Uh, and she has her master's degree in education. So she uh, is well-educated. And uh, she has written, her first book was God's Got This, A Strategic Prayer Guide for Your Adoption Journey. And it's rated five stars on Amazon, so go check that out. But she works tirelessly to help the church recognize the critical need of rescuing at-risk kids from the nightmare of life without a family. We are about to have some brave conversations today about how we can work in strategic prayer to the work that we do and what that looks like. So I'm going to roll that intro and then you can meet Jackie. I'm Rebecca Britt and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community, and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Stable Moments podcast. I'm super excited to talk about this topic and to talk with you. You kind of hit quite a few of the, you know, criteria we have for guests. Yeah, I'm like, wow, you're you're a lot of things. You really are going to speak to our audience. So with, with that said, can you just dive in? And um, I think it's appropriate uh, with the audience we have. I know that you're a foster youth, former foster youth. Um, yep. so I would love to just start with, um, your experience with that. How'd you come into foster care? Anything you want to tell us about your experience? Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking just when you said foster youth, I'm like kind of former foster and former youth yeah. also. So I've got some, got some wisdom under my belt now. Um, but mine is actually crazy. I wasn't in America's foster care system. I was in foster care in a third world country. I was born in Colombia, and, um, I came into foster care through a very, um, kind of circular way. Um, and I only just learned this about three years ago um, when as part of Ignite Hope, I was attending the National Adoption Conference, which happened to be in Atlanta, which is where we're based. And a man walked by and overheard me speaking about being born in Bogota and the name of the orphanage where I was born. And I've always explained it. I was born in an orphanage. And I always just kind of accepted that, but I didn't really understand it because that's not, you know, typical, like maybe a hospital, you know, people have home births. Um, and the man was a Colombian national who was an attorney in Florida and knew Fana, the orphanage. And he said, oh, were you, um, you were born in the mother's house and in that country before the Hague, this is like in the, you know, late seventies, um, 
they had a mother's house on one side, the orphanage on the other, and they were brand spanking new. And I was their first baby that they ever had guardianship of. And once I was placed in the orphanage, which was happened to be a Catholic orphanage, I was placed with the nuns. They realized they didn't have anybody who oversaw this baby room 24 seven and you know, being a newborn couldn't really leave me to my own devices. So I ended up going into foster care oh, wow. through this kind of crazy loop de loop um, and ended up with my foster family who I'm still very close to today, which is very unusual considering that a lot of kids go through a lot of different placements. Um, I went straight to my um, foster mom and she handed me right over to my parents once my adoption was identified and I was able to be placed. Um, And so now here we are decades later and I have been able to retain that connection with not only my culture, but with the first family that ever took me in and took care of me, um, which is it's amazing, but it just speaks to the point that every kid's story is so unique and so different. Um, but, you know, there will be similarities. I mean, I can't tell my story without recognizing that there was loss. Um, but I also can't tell my story without recognizing that there was also a lot of hope. And and that's what I honestly, you know, leading Ignite Hope, leading a prayer ministry, that is my fervent prayer for every at-risk kid that they are able to see and feel and accept hope because I just, I don't know how you would function without it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So, all right. So you are literally born in an orphanage, literally born in an orphanage. And, um, they realized they didn't think too far ahead. So you end up in foster care. And then I, I'm making an assumption that your uh, family was from the United States, the adoptive family was from the United States. Yes. And and that's probably a good assumption considering my (laughs) Southern accent, which I grew up, I was brought into America and grew up in California, but my mama is a Southern debutante, North Carolina. So I've always pretty much sounded exactly like this because I sound like her. Um, no matter, you know, no matter where in the country I might be residing. So, um, yeah, I grew up in, um, Los Angeles a couple years after my adoption, my parents went back and, um, wanted to adopt again. And my younger sister became probably the first and possibly only identified placement internationally. Um, so my foster mom was able to go to her orphanage leave as her guardian with all of her visas, all of the information she would need documentation wise and fly into LAX and hand my sister to my parents on American soil, which I mean, there are a lot of great things, the protections for vulnerable children that the Hague convention gives, um, but you would not be able to do those kinds of things now, especially kind of in the world we're living in right now. So, yeah, yeah. So how old were you um, when you were adopted? Um, I was adopted. Well, I, they had to do it twice because you couldn't just adopt in one country and have it be seen by another. So mm. I was adopted in Colombia when I was about seven or eight weeks old. 
Um, and then it was everything was finalized here in the States. Um, and then I was naturalized when I was three. Um, and I remember at that point, um, my, I got a little flag, like I had to go and do, um, I had to say the Pledge of Allegiance because the naturalization process, it's one of my very earliest memories. But I also remember mama sitting with me and drilling me on everyone. Okay, George Washington. And then who was the second? Like I could say them all through Reagan. <laughs> and um, And I just thought, this is apparently what they do. And you didn't need you to do, know you that. But, more than American kids. Yeah. But, you know, mama was like, okay, we're not letting this thing go sideways. So but we got that done. And I remember I had a little flag and I had a bouquet of flowers from my daddy. So that was actually like a pretty, it happened very young. Yes. Very, very young. Um, and it, if you're looking at kids who are in foster care or foster care in different countries and then adopted inner country into America, they wouldn't really go through this kind of a process now. Um, but, you know, there are also vulnerable kids who would be possibly dreamers or people who are brought in in different ways into America that they might have a similar type of experience. But um, yeah, it, it's funny though. I can't, I, have you ever heard that country song? I'm proud to be an American. Mm -hmm. I cannot hear that song without crying. I'm like, I'm just really proud. <laughs> you know, I mean, not that our country is perfect by any means, but I am very grateful because, um, you know, I have gone to different countries on in different capacities um, doing some mission work, um, short-term mission work. And we really are so blessed to be able to be even having a conversation like this mm -hmm. about prayer, about, you know, using technology, just sitting here together. Um, even virtually. So I love that. Yeah. So when you were saying that you kept a uh, relationship with your foster family, I was thinking that you were probably with them for a while. No, um, but because I was actually their first foster placement. Um, and so they went on and I, I, this is what I think speaks so loudly to the families who open their homes. Um, what you never want is one and done. Um, and you, you don't know, I mean, family is messy and kids are messy. Um, and what I'm so grateful for is that they opened their home to me um, and then continuing opening their home to other kids and have stayed in that connection in different ways, which you wouldn't think would even be possible. We're talking different hemispheres, different cultures and languages and all sorts of stuff. So I'm thinking, you know, if it's possible in our little instance, it really is possible here too. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really, really beautiful. I love that. So your relationship, you still have a relationship today or? Yes, um, I do. Uh, well, I the last time I saw them in person was about 12 years ago. And I went to Columbia. Um, it was actually my very first mission trip. And I got to serve in the orphanage where I was born. Wow. And they only open up that type of service trip um, to former foster kids, so kids who have been in that orphanage for, Great. you know, however long, however long ago. Um, and I stayed with my foster mom and got to see, um, I have two sisters and a brother and, um, the girls I had seen intermittently, they had come to America to practice their English and stayed with my family. Um, and then even up to, let's see, I think it was probably 2006 when, um, we call her little Marta, which is funny because, you know, I'm now in my forties and she's now in her forties and, but she's still little Marta because her mom is big Marta. <laughs> little Marta came and visited us in 2006 here in Georgia and we had an awesome time. So when I flew back down there, um, probably around 
2009 or so, um, I got to spend time not only in the orphanage where I was born and serving those kids and even helping some of the kids learn English. Um, not all of them were coming to America who were placed, being identified for adoption, um, but I really was no use teaching somebody French. So, sure. <laughs> you know, I got to high five them, <laughs> um, but to help them learn, um, you know, language acquisition. Um, and also be able to um, spend time with the, you know, the first family that I'd ever connected with. And I hadn't seen um, my brother, my foster brother, Ernan, I guess it had been 31 years or something like that. Um, and so he worked for this um, American embassy in Bogota. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was before a lot of our, you know, travel restrictions, I was able to just, you know, walk in, they definitely did clearance and background checks, but he stood up from his desk when I walked in, he hadn't seen me since I was this little baby. And um, I just started crying, just bawling, just thinking that this was the first family that ever showed me love and gave me hope and, and we're just there for all of the things. And I just lost it. And he started crying. And so then you have state department people like, you know, <laughs> diplomats coming by and they're crying. They don't even know why they're crying. It's just like, it's so emotional. So, um, but it was, um, it was just such a super cool experience to get, to go back and to experience that. And to, I, I think that was one of the things God used to later inform Ignite Hope. So it was, um, it was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds incredible. And it seems like against the odds, you know, just having it be international. And I, I don't know, it just seems like there's so many kids, um, you know, in the U.S. that were in the U.S. foster yeah. system and they don't have any of these connections and they're not going to be able to go make them. So, and, and that would be something that I just um, one of the things Ignite Hope is very passionate about when we explain our ministry, we explain we are Ignite Hope. And it's actually if you can see it behind me, we advocate resource and encourage. And that's advocacy within the church, just calling families into the space that, you know, open your home. Not everyone is called to foster and adopt, but every single person can do something. Um, but we also advocate legislatively and um, our, you know, our little ministry. Um, has been really, really working to get a foster child's bill of rights um, mm -hmm. passed in our state. Um, there are about four states right now that have an active foster child bill of rights. But if you don't have, you know, a mama bear and a papa bear speaking into and over your life and advocating and guarding and protecting, then the powers that be that are in authority over you, they need to be that protection. They need to be that voice. And so um, we have been really working and praying here to get traction on that because it, it, I, I just have this really strong heartfelt belief that if it's not okay for my kids, it's not okay for any kid. Mm. I love that. Can you like just break down what, what a foster child's bill of rights would look like? Uh, well, it's so funny. It's in its third iteration. And the very first time we started working on this, it was honestly a bunch of mama bears who were either foster moms, adoptive moms, whatever, that we had just been living in the space. And, um, and I probably didn't even share this accurately. I am a um, former foster child and adoptee, but I'm also an adoptive and biological mom. So I, I see it from a lot of different points of view. Um, and so we were just kind of um, trying to craft something that would honor that child and honor the biological family. Um, and one of the things was 
especially, you know, when they're a certain age, they need to be able to understand and to speak into their own care. And Mm -hmm. you don't just assign, okay, this child has been through XYZ trauma. So we're going to put them on XYZ medication. You know, there needs to be the understanding that at, at some point they have to have a voice and be able to handle it and not just have it be Every kid is unique. I said that earlier. So their care needs to be specific and unique. Um, Another thing that we have seen and we've experienced within our own ministry is kids who get brought into care um, at different times. So a biological sibling might be in care. And if mama has another child and that child gets brought into care as an infant, if it's another stay or perhaps um, the parentage, they might have a different line and the father's um, on the father's line. So they're not placed together. Well, those kids have every right to have connection and have Mm -hmm. that ability to talk. We had one um, family where the children, an older boy and a younger girl had grown up together and their mother was the same biological mother, two different biological fathers and were brought into care separately. And the child, um, the older child decided he wanted to stay with the foster family and the um, judge honored that, but took the younger daughter back and um, recidivism, as I'm sure you're completely aware is very high when we are not well supporting the first family. Um, she ended up back in care in another County and nobody connected the fact mm-hmm. that they, that these two kids had a lifetime of history and that he was her anchor and they were each other's person. And they went over nine months without speaking to each other, let alone seeing each other in the same state. And those are the kinds of things like, no, there with the way we have um, technology that we can use it to leverage the best for these kids. We need to do that. These children should have immediately been able to connect to encouraged to set up times to see each other. Um, I I cannot personally imagine not seeing my sister for nine months. I -hmm. honestly can't imagine not talking to her every single day. And, and with cell phones, with technology, with zoom, with all these, especially with everything else being unstable. Exactly. And every, and it's not just, I mean, if you are brought into foster care at any point for any amount of time, something has happened that is broken. Mm-hmm. And now we're living in a world where it would be really easy to say just this whole blamed world is broken. So any level of stability that families bringing kids in might have had, I mean, that's been compromised too. So let's at least make it an even level playing field. Like, yes, talk to your sister love on her, share what you've done, you know, what's hard, you're struggling in algebra, whatever you, you have that right to have that connection. And I don't believe that because your life circumstances or your family circumstances are difficult that we can't as a community to say, this is just basic. Yeah. Um, and I, I may be putting the car before the horse here, but, um, do you have a specific call to action for um, community members to be able to help help that gain traction? Yes. Um, what we are trying to do right now in Georgia is to um, contact and connect with as many churches and anyone who is in um, state Congress as will listen to us. Um, because the one thing that we have learned working in advocacy is if they hear it seven times, 
then it is an action point. And being able to gain access to um, legislators, you know, right now, a lot of times they're not even meeting in person, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff on Zoom. But if we can at least get to an aide, if we can get to somebody who is on their staff and share what we know and what we're finding and what is supported by social science, what's supported by, you know, all of what child welfare has seen in the last, you know, five years and specifically even the last 18 months, all the trends and forces, I believe that if we can get people calling in and or emailing and saying, you know what, if it's not okay for my kid, it's not okay for any kid and just start a movement, I really believe we would see this gain traction. Do you on Ignite Hope's website have information that people can find so that they can easily know who to contact or who to email or who to call? Uh, We're actually reworking our website right now just to make um, the clarion call that we have in this um, as easily accessible as we can. So I am hoping by the end of this month that that will be up there front page, easy to click on and find what you need to. Um, We also have a newsletter, um, just an email newsletter where you can sign up um, on our website. So we call them igniters, any of our stakeholders, be they parents, be they um, foster youth that we have in um, a wraparound support, be they um, donors or um, any of our volunteers, um, they would be getting information from us on what we're doing and what's moving forward. Because right now we're kind of in a legislative holding at a point like this is the time when we can do that background work before um, legislation opens in January. Nice. Yeah. So go to um, Ignite Hope, especially if y'all are in Georgia, which I have a lot of a stable moments started in Georgia. So I do have a ah, lot of following there. That's so awesome. um, go on their website and just uh, join their newsletter so that you yes. can know when you need to be doing those things. It's a small thing. You know, we say everybody can be involved and maybe you're not a mentor in the Stable Moments program. Maybe you're not a foster parent, but you're a community member that really wants to be of help and do your yes. part. And this is one of those things that you can do from the comfort of your own home. And it makes a huge difference. It really does. And it's interesting because I'm one of the things that I love about how God designed Ignite Hope is that we are a bridge. So we are connectors between, you know, congressional um, movement and um, what's happening in the congregation at churches and families and foster youth. So we want to bring all these people together in this space because I feel like we're just a little piece of the pie of what's going on in child welfare. You're another piece of the pie. DFACS and CPS is another piece. And my my great hope is that we're just all going to be talking and in a conversation and sharing, you know, this is what we've learned. What have you learned? What's worked in your state Mm -hmm. and be able to move this forward because, um, I, I was actually speaking um, uh, probably about two weeks ago um, to a group and I reminded them like, you know, for children, they don't have a voice legislatively. They're not voting. They're not lobbying. They aren't the big donors. Um, and it isn't a red or blue issue. So it doesn't get a lot of high profile work. Um, but because we are a ministry, because we're a prayer ministry, I'm like, you know, it's not red or blue. It's purple. It's Jesus. Like he's already mm-hmm. said, go do this, go take care of my kids. And so we just need to leave that comfortable spot where it's like, oh, that's so sad that somebody else um, can do that. And it's like, no, somebody else can, but that somebody could be you. 
It could be anybody. <laughs> it could it be everybody. Be, if, yeah, it why not be. you? Yes, exactly. Or if not you, then who? That's right. exactly it. Exactly. Okay, so we've t- you've been talking about it, and you said that you're a prayer ministry. Yes. Um, and so, in your tagline, strategic prayer for orphan care. Yes. So, so tell me what led you to starting Ignite Hope and building this mission around strategic prayer. Um, it's funny. I mean, looking back, I shared, you know, my very first moment, my first breath in an orphanage. So obviously God's been writing this for a while, but I'm kind of dense. So it took me a little bit to be like, oh, maybe, maybe this is a thing. Um, but when, um, my husband and I were going through second adoption, waiting on our son, um, we actually didn't know he would be, um, a son. We were just praying healthy baby. Um, and everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the social worker that we were assigned ended up, um, her husband had to move. So she moved. So then we were the last family brought in that year. So not only did they have to find a social worker, hire this person, train this person, but then she was going to go. And I say she, because it ended up being a woman. It, could have been a, a male, but no matter what, we were the last in line. So we were kind of put on an indefinite hold. And I just mm-hmm. kept thinking, you know, um, my daughter is getting older. I'm getting older. Everybody's getting older. And I just really have a mother's heart. Like my greatest joy is a full house of kids and it just thrills me to pieces. And so I kept thinking, what is going on with this, everything is exploding. And then I had to have surgery and then I was on bed rest. And in the middle of all of this, we found out um, again, through a just crazy turn of events. Um, I was in a praying mom's group at my um, daughter's preschool. And there was a woman there who had three boys who were all adopted. And she, um, we were talking that day about what is the big prayer need in your family? And I'm like, our adoption, we've been on pretty much permanent hold for a year. And it feels like this is never going to end. And it's that weight, it's that tension in child welfare, like children are waiting to get in homes. Families are waiting to get their child home. Biological parents are waiting on court dates to see what a judge, it's just this unending weight. And it is, it is soul wearying. I was, I was just weary. And um, that night, her husband got a call from one of his friends in college in another state um, saying, hey, are y'all looking to adopt again? And they said, um, no, we're, our house is full. We're good. We got three boys. We're trying to manage the blessing. And when my friend Jenny overheard the conversation, she was like, wait, hold up. What was that about? And um, her husband said, don't worry. I told him our house is full. We're good. And she's like, yeah, but I was just praying with a woman today who is waiting on an adoption. And so just through all these different ways and turns and open doors, we found out about our son. Well, at first we were told he was a 12 week old little girl. And then we got another phone call. We're told it was eight week old little girl, and then finally settled at a two week old little boy. So we're changing (laughs) ages and gender and everything. And as we're experiencing these highs, these lows, these weights, all this confusion, our um, fingerprints got lost in the FBI and you cannot bring, you know, at-risk kids into your home without being fully vetted, documented. And those fingerprints are key and they were just lost. And I ended up, um, found the FBI phone number, started calling until I got a real person. And um, 
there is um, a scripture that's basically speaking to the persistence of prayer, where it's talking about if you um, you go to your friend's house and you bang on the door and you ask for bread uh, because you have somebody visiting and you need to feed them. And your friend says, I've already put my children to sleep. We're all asleep, but you keep banging and you keep banging. And that's who I was. Like, there's a reason this squeaky wheel get stuff done. I just kept just speed dialing the FBI. Like my fingerprints are missing and my son is growing up without me. I need help. And, um, by the grace of God, his birth mother made an adoption plan for him. And he went into foster care in that other state. Here I am in Georgia, just begging God just to move for our family. And I realized what we were experiencing right then was this incredible spiritual void, because when you walk out in faith, however you're called into it um, to work with these at-risk kids, you're walking onto a battlefield, whether you recognize it or not. And not everybody gets that. Like the statistic is 33% of adult Americans will consider adoption or foster care at some point, mm-hmm. And 2% are finalizing this. Mm-hmm. 98% of American adults that do not experience this tension. And so people didn't really get it. You know, they're like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll pray for you. We're, you know, have a happy day kind of things. And I'm like, no, I need people banging on the gates of heaven. Like mm-hmm. my child needs me. and what do I need to do? And the woman who I kept, you know, pummeling with all my speed dials um, in the FBI, and I cannot remember her name, but um, which is crazy right now that I can't remember it, but she was an adoptive mom. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe she had adopted out of foster care. And so she got it. And so she started doing everything she could on her end, found our fingerprints and sent them on. So those fingerprints were there before our plane landed. Um, And I have seen over and over in our own life how God moves when his people ask him to. Mm-hmm. And so once we finally were like, okay, we got home, we're here, we got our two kids, we got a boy and girl, thank the Lord. Um, and so people started saying, oh, you're thinking about fostering, you're thinking about adopting, you should go talk to Jeff and Jackie. So it became very organic. We would just, you know, pack up the kids in the stroller and go meet somebody for breakfast who was kind of thinking about this because I'm I'm like, children deserve safe homes. And if there are people who have safe homes that are kind of, can I do this or not? Then I'm like, that is my call to do everything I can to resource and support and encourage these people so they don't say this is too hard or too complicated or too messy. Um, so it, like I said, it very organic, just meeting people around town saying, Hey, you should totally do this. And next thing, you know, um, we ended up, my husband and I were invited on a mission trip to East Asia to work in a special needs orphanage. Um, and at this point, um, that country had actually expanded from just orphanages to doing foster care. And this organization we worked with, um, which I can't name, um, just to protect them. They were doing foster care very well, really making sure that these children who exponentially, you know, in America, the foster care system is broken. And I think we can all agree on that. But if you get into some of these under uh, other countries where basic human rights are not mm-hmm. even spoken about, it's even less with children's rights. It's even less with children experiencing special needs. So the level of diagnosis that we were seeing these children experience was far and beyond 
stuff that I had seen and experienced at that point here in America, even being in the space. And um, we spent two weeks just loving on those sweet babies and came back wrecked. Just we mm-hmm. were totally normal, like North Atlanta family. I was homeschooling. My husband worked like 80 hours a week. And I would say within a couple of weeks of returning to the States, my husband came to me and said, yeah, we need to start, uh, we need to start an orphan care ministry real quick. And I was like, um, hard no on that one. Cause <laughs> at this point I'm four months pregnant with our fourth child and you know, he's the breadwinner he holds the insurance. And I'm like, yeah, no, 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 we're, we're not doing that. And so my husband challenged me and he was like, babe, pray for a week. Just ask God, what is he telling us to do? He's like, Cause I, I can't let this go. Like we have now seen and experienced what most of the world will never see and experience being in this country, in a closed orphanage, working with these kids. And, um, and so, because I'm super awesome, um, I prayed all around it. I kind of did God is great. God is good all week with my, that's all I do. And finally I had to get real because, um, a, God was pressing it into my heart big time. And two, I knew I already taken six days. My husband was going to be like, so did you pray about it? And I wanted to at least say, yeah, at least one time I did. Um, and so I went upstairs to our bedroom and I got on my knees. And and when I'm really like getting real with Jesus, like I have to get down on my face, but my belly was already too big. Um, and so I just watched my tears dropping on the carpet. And I was like, God, just give me 18 years to grow this baby up. I was like, please just, I will grow him up. And I'm like, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I will go to Zambia. I will figure out where Zambia is. <laughs> and, um, you know, I know people experience God in different ways, but at that moment I heard him out loud. So gently say, I will give you that time. And I opened my eyes, kind of looked around like, did anyone else hear that? Mm-hmm. But immediately after that, um, I heard him say, but recognize if you do, that no one's speaking on behalf of my kids for an entire generation. Mm. And that same mama bear feeling of if it's not okay for my kids, it's not okay for any kid. I was like, okay, what does this mean? Like our, our vision is to be the voice of at-risk kids in the public square and straight to the heart of God. What I have now realized as God has refined and refined what we do within this ministry is that, yes, it's advocacy in the church and it's advocating legislatively, but it's also literally going into the throne room of God and battling for these children's hearts, because there's a reason why if you have, if you grew up in foster care, you're like 70% more likely to have a kid that grows up in foster care. And there is a reason why. 75% of girls who are in foster care will get trafficked at some point in their life. Like if I got on, you know, NBC and said, you know, 75% of girls at the university of Georgia are going to be trafficked this year, people would be up in arms and it's happening every single day. And it's happening on our watch. And I believe um, just after really digging in with amazing mentors and teachers, and just honestly digging into the word of God, there's a generational bondage that can be broken in the courts of heaven, but his church has got to be there. We have got to be the voice and we have to do it now because children are suffering and it's not okay. That's beautiful. So what is then, what is strategic prayer? I've never heard of this before. And, um, and honestly, you know, I had what, 
one, I made assumptions when I read strategic prayer, you know, and I had shared with you before, but I've written a um, blog post about why we don't pray for them. And I did make it kind of a clickbaity title, you know, so that people would yeah. have to click in. So yeah. Some people are like, you should have, after I've read this, you should have titled it this. I'm like, yeah, well, you would have never read it. Exactly. <laughs> That's what but, you have. Like, if you want to lose 80 pounds in six <laughs> seconds, you're like, yes, never mind. People would be up in arms about like, why we don't pray for them. Yeah. But my, um, as a um, nonprofit where we would match up one community mentor with one kid, the mentors often would ask, can we pray for them? And I would get a lot of my mentors out of the local churches because yeah. I would, I knew that they would say, oh, this is great. This is an on-ramp because God has kind of put this on my heart, but I don't feel like fostering, but this is one hour a week I could give. Yeah. So it was this perfect opportunity, but then they would come and they'd say, we heard you speak at this church. And so you must be Christian and the kids must be Christian and we must be, um, you know, sharing the word of God with them. And so yeah. they made a bunch of assumptions about how we would pray for the kids. Exactly. And I also have my own experience about how prayer has been used in a way that wasn't meaningful for me. So when I started right. my ministry of stable moments, I um, had to eat out of a food bank because I had no income. And Girl. so I was yeah. staying at a horse farm, living above the stalls with rats in my apartment and going to this amazing other ministry that would give me food. And I was coming back and I was serving these kids. But every time I went to this ministry, I, they would load me up with food. They were so sweet. I loved their, they allowed you an appointment to come in and get your food. So you didn't feel like you were with a bunch of other people like fighting right. for your rice and it beans. gave like, you it was, dignity. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, it was a great setup, but when they would load my car up every single time, they would say, can we pray for you? And I just taken food from this place. So like, I'm not going to say no. So I felt a little cornered in the prayer. And then the prayer usually went something like, you know, you know, God, we hope you help Rebecca know you more. Um, we hope you help her through this time in her life. Mm -hmm. And for me, I thought that I knew God better than ever before because I had given up all everything my to be yes. able to serve these kids. And I felt like I wasn't going through a rough patch in my life that God was actually providing for me because he gave me a food bank to go to. Yes. So. So it felt belittling. Moments, yeah. In those moments, I felt like the obligatory prayer that I felt like these well-intended people felt like they were doing, mm -hmm. they were having, like, I love it when prayer is spontaneous and like God speaks through people, but I also feel like there's this like obligatory prayer where people are like, Oh, I don't really know what to say today. So we're just going to put our hands on everybody that comes to our ministry and tell them the same thing. We yeah. hope you get out of this situation and we hope God, you know, God better. And so for me, I was like, Hmm, that ju it just didn't seem aligned with how God was speaking to me. Yes. Oh, girl. Yes. You're, you're preaching it. And it's so funny because when I was a little girl, like pr prayers is my love language. It really is. And I didn't understand how I was operating in that when I was little, but I'd be the kid in the back. My mom would be driving down the street and I'd look to the right and see some random guy. Like I can actually picture one of these guys in Los Angeles on Van Nuys Boulevard. And I saw him and God just put this little thing in my heart. Like, pray for that man. It, it was, it was little kid prayer, right? It was, please let him have a happy day and keep him safe in the car. And I hope he knows you better. And I think 
what has happened in the church and church. I'm just going to tell you right now, I love you. I am with you and I am a full work in progress. We don't understand accessing the power and authority of real prayer. Mm -hmm. Like, and so I would always tell my parents and my friends, like y'all pray hard. And they're like, we are praying hard. Like, okay, let Jackie have a happy day and let her, you know, and it was kind of like that. And I'm like, no, I'm talking about praying without ceasing and travailing prayer. Like when Jesus was in the garden and he was praying, like he was sweating blood. And I will tell you, I have never actually done that, but I have absolutely just seen and experienced things that I am not experiencing here. Um, and for example, and I will share this and possibly you may get, you know, comments like, wow, that lady was cray cray and that's okay. Um, but I realized after going over to that other, well, I've been in several other countries, but that specific one that started Ignite Hope in East Asia, that there were kids there that had loved and hugged and held that were crying at night because they had a nightmare or they were sobbing because they were sick and everybody in the orphanage is sick and there was no one to attend just to them. Whereas my kid would get the sniffles and I'd be up with like a mirror on their face because I don't want to wake them up. Like, are they breathing? Are they mm -hmm. breathing? You know, and like the piggy snout sound. I'm like, yes, that means breathing. Okay. Um, and I remember praying with God, let me take their tears. Mm -hmm. Let, let them sleep in peace. And give me what's on their heart so I can take it to you. And I was, uh, I was up between like three and five in the morning, just on my knees sobbing. And I realized at that point, I wasn't even just praying for those like 25 kids we'd worked with. I was praying for that city and for that region and for that country. And I'm like, that, that is what, when we're talking strategic prayer, we're talking, you pray God's own words back to him because it says in his word that his word never returns void. So if you're speaking the words that he's given us and saying, I am taking these to you, Jesus, as a gift on behalf of your kids that you love and you see, and that are so hurt and so broken and do what only you can do. Oh my Lord, he moves and it is, it is crazy and it is amazing and it is share it. And people are like, they either just totally get it or they're like, that's a little crazy, but I kind of want to know what that is. Mm -hmm. And when we started, I, I would just do that. Y'all go pray hard. And my, my people, my prayer people would come back to me like, okay, we want to know what you mean. And I had no idea. It, it is, I know, a specific gift that God has given me. And so I've spent the last half decade trying to dig down on, okay, how do you teach this? Mm -hmm. Because what's innate to me, um, it's almost like musicality. Like some people have perfect pitch or some people can just play um, an instrument just by listening. And then other people are like, I, I don't even know how you got that. Like, I, I need the theory and technique. I need the notes on the page. And so what we are doing and designing within Ignite Hope are ways and strategies through webinars, um, through blogs, um, literally teaching, okay, here's where we start. Like, if we blanket start at God loves us, if we just say God is loving kindness, it doesn't mean he loves Americans or he loves the American church. Like he loves that pregnant teenager that is trying to figure out if she's going to choose life. And he loves that mama of six in Uganda who is taking another baby to the orphanage because she can't feed them. 
And it's not, it's not that she does not have love in her heart. It's not that she's not called to be a mama. Her sacrifice at that moment is to say, I'm going to give you the chance I didn't have. And I believe as the church, we are being called into it hard right now because every kid, I mean, I cannot think of any kid in any country in the world in this COVID era who is not at risk at some level. And it's coming in every direction through social media, through internet, through peers, through anxiety and depression rates that are through the roof. And then you level on top of it child welfare needs where you don't know where your next meal is coming from. And you don't know if mom is going to come home tonight and you don't know if daddy might have been using today and what that might look like and how you have to protect your kids. I'm like, church, we have got to get down on our knees. We need to storm the gates of heaven for these kids. And he gives it to us in his word. And he tells us what to say. And it's, yes, it is know you more. And yes, it's give you hope. But it is, that leaves it at the surface level. And it's it's leaving it where I was when I was five and looking out the door. And I feel like a lot of our church right now, Big C, the church is a bunch of gray hairs wearing diapers because God says, I'll feed you on milk. And we've all kind of stayed at milk level and said, okay, you know, or give me a little formula and I'll be good. And it's like, no, we need to be eating the meat of the word and we need to be knowing, but we know, but we know that when we look at a child and we have the chance to be there in their presence, just say, Holy Spirit, show me right now what is broken in this child's life. And even if it's not audible, you speak into that and you battle for that child because there is a reason why some kids are attacked from the womb, right? I mean, there's a reason why mamas are making adoption plans and CPS workers are bringing kids into foster care. And I wholeheartedly believe it is because there is a kingdom calling on these kids' lives. And it is our responsibility to make sure they walk into that calling. So this sounds like, so much more of a dedication, a dedicated practice that people can do that isn't a direct interaction with the child. Sometimes it is. And and we have to be very careful with that because when we're dealing with a foster family and these kids are minors in care of um, DFACS or DSS or however it's um, titled in your state, we will empower and teach the family how to do this for them because they they have already stood in the gap for these children. And so they actually have a spiritual authority to speak into their life. If there is an older teen who can make that decision, um, or especially a kid who's aging out of the system, um, then we supply them with their own support team. Um, so you're going out because you don't know what you don't know. If you've never had, you know, parents speaking in and giving you identity and speaking words of wisdom and speaking words of hope, um, and and you say, yeah, I'll take this, you know, spiritual wraparound, then we will put you with someone who's been Ignite Hope trained, who is trauma aware, who is ready to just sit and be a presence. And it's super cool because like we were just talking about like all this virtual and digital and all that. Um, there have been times in my motherhood that I just lament the internet and I'm like, Oh my Lord, the internet's just evil. And now God has reframed it. Like we need to reclaim this. Like, okay, 
I can get on a Zoom call with you now that you've gotten a scholarship to somewhere in Missoula and I can listen to your day and this, you know, boy that maybe you might be interested in, but there's a lot of hurt there and we got a lot of healing to do. And I can speak into that and I can text you and I can have a group me, you know, with you. And and there are just different ways to make it, like you were saying, an easy onboard experience. Um because more people need to be involved. And there are certain people who are kind of wired like me that prayer, this resonates with them. But I really believe that anybody who has Holy Spirit can access the same authority and power. Um, it's just learning, learning those notes. Yeah. So what do you do when you encounter, because this, what I'm, what I'm like, what I struggle with is the human side of this the non-spiritual side yeah. of this oh humans we, can mess it up can't we <laughs> we do and like even when i teach trauma-informed approaches i know yeah. that there's a way that people can take my trauma-informed approach and which isn't mine but you know the yeah. one that i'm preaching and they yeah. can the, their approach can be so shame inducing and not at all what i was trying to do so yeah. so my you know my concern would be somebody's like, okay, I'm going to move mountains for you. And I'm going to knock on heaven's gate for you. Or however you put that. <laughs> and, um, and then like, I feel this like ego coming in of like this thing I'm doing for you. And like, if a kid's like, that doesn't work for me, I hate God. You know, like mm-hmm. I, my last foster family was Christian. And oh, let me tell you, I will never be a Christian. I never want to be a Christian. So with that, kid i'm seeing it as being able to align yourself with however you experience god for that child that doesn't have to be this direct like let me teach you my ways or why right you know why this is right for me something that honors exactly where that child is today and you know and and they don't need to be anything different to earn God's grace. Love. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that start starting with that base, like there is nothing that you could do. There's nothing I could do that would make God love me more or Mm. less. And starting from that baseline. And that's why when we get our prayer partners, when they come to us, um, we are very, um, forthright. Like you were saying like, Oh, that foster family was a Christian. I struggle. And it saddens me. I struggle saying I'm a Christian. My husband and I have shifted it to Christ follower because Christian is almost a um, kind of a tagline. Like you can say, oh, I'm Christian. Like you can say, I'm Presbyterian or I go to that church or, you know, or bat- I'm not picking on Presbyterians. I was part of the Presbyterian <laughs> church for a while, but, um, you know, it doesn't matter what the denomination is. You have, you really want to make sure that the people who are directly serving children have that veteran spiritual understanding of what this is. Whereas people who are coming in new, I would probably put them on, okay, I'm going to give you this region and this region of this country is going through civil war and they are going through, um, elevated stuff with the pandemic right now. And they're in a transition with their um, government, which is all impacting child welfare. And I want you to start here. And we have the most fantabulous um, director of prayer. Um, She is my mommy mentor. And I kid you not. And people, this is for, for real. 28 kids. She has three bios, 
24 adopted out of foster care and one spiritually adopted. So this woman knows from when she speaks and she is the most Holy spirit filled, loving, grace filled, non-judgmental, like wherever you are, she's like, okay, I'm just going to sit right next to you and be exactly where you are. And guess what? Jesus sitting right on the other side of you, just loving you just where you are. And And sometimes, like I said, sometimes their hearts will be ready. And that's a spiritual discernment to know if somebody is ready to hear it. Because I mean, gracious, you can bang your Bible all day long, but if that heart's not ready, you're not making them more like, Hey, this is great. I want to be a part of it. You're kind of like, that's crazy. And I'm going to run the other direction. And, and it's so funny because religion is what turns people off. Jesus, like if you read the, um, the New Testament, Jesus drew people to him and he drew the messy, the broken, the sidelined, you know, the, the, I, I really resonate with messy people. <laughs> we have a messy life. Um, and that, that drawing, that attraction, that's Jesus, all the ego and the, you know, doctrine and the, you know, which church you pull into on a Sunday or whatever day you show up, that is humanity. And, and it does get messy because it's like, but then at the same time, God has invited us messy human beings to be his hands and feet. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we are talking about, and I say this very delicately being the mouth of God, like speaking for God, speaking his words, the best thing you can do is just start with just speaking his words. And I, I will tell you, um, we're doing this podcast right now before I do any interview or before I speak, I always just sit there with God and say, okay, if you don't want me to say it, shut me up. Instant mm-hmm. laryngitis. I do not want to embarrass you. Not like, you know, little old Jackie and Georgia can embarrass Jesus, but you know, I don't want anything to be taken as a soundbite that would be something that could be used to shame or guilt or hurt or, or even worse, honestly, make people run away. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think when we just start with the baseline of God is loving kindness, okay, we can dial down on that. And it's hard when your life doesn't match the little Sunday school version, when you've been through severe loss and severe abuse and trauma that is just unspeakable. And I mean, I've had people sit with me and look at me and like, where was God? How how is he allowing this? Mm -hmm. And the struggle is that for a time, God has deeded the world to the enemy. The enemy has free reign. God isn't doing this to us. It's happening because we live in a broken world. And if he allows it, he's sitting right next to you crying. And he's sitting right next to you. I mean, there have been many times I have just prayed into stuff that's happened in our own life and in our own family that I'm like, Jesus, how did we end up here? And when I really just quiet my mind and get with him, I can see what was happening in the spiritual realm of the ways that we were still protected. Like, yeah, this happened, but here were the 90 other fiery darts that were aiming for you that I took, that I just leaned over and took them for you. And that is not something that I would have totally understood at the level I understand it now when I was 16. But I think there's a yearning in every heart to have that just being known and seen and loved. And we are. 
every kid in foster care is. I mean, I was telling someone I was at a conference last week. I'm like, you know, my goal is to work myself out of a job. If I can get the churches to just dig deep in this and say, we're going to walk into child welfare. We're going to walk into these spaces of orphan care that are messy and uncomfortable. And I'm just going to take this one kid or this one family or this one mama. And I'm just going to be present and I am not going to preach. I'm just going to just speak truth in Jesus love. I mean, that, that will change the world. I love that. So how do you know the difference between a calling or something put on your heart or something that's aligned with your greater power or however people see God and your own desires? Because like you were talking about, you were going to um, speed dial FBI, speed dial the FBI, or there's a lot of times in my life where I start to... I, I, it almost feels like I get into this, you could call it persistence. And then Mm -hmm. I question myself, I go, am I being like really gritty and persistent here? Or am I trying to grab control? And is this another, is this a time where I need to surrender? Yeah. So it's like, how do you decipher between, yeah, this is passion and aligned and I'm being the hands and feet to like, uh, you're kind of being what Rebecca wants (laughs) to be. Yeah. Oh, girl, I go rogue. I really do. And the best ways that I have I have learned to do that is to receive godly counsel. Like it matters who speaks into your life, mm-hmm. you know, and if I surround myself with a bunch of other hothead mama bears, I mean, we're just going to be like, storm the gates of the White House, you know, we're just going to go crazy. And um, what I've had to do and what is super hard and very humbling, um, our very first board meeting with Ignite Hope, I had found out that um, our state has some very archaic child welfare laws still on the books. Um, Things like if they can't find uh, a placement for a child, um, you know, we can do hoteling. We can, you know, they might end up in the office of a defects worker because they can't find anyone. Well, they can also end up in juvenile detention Mm -hmm. for the crime of having no family. Mm. I went crazy and I walked into that very first meeting with these amazing prayerful people who thank the Lord, um, we're not going in hothead like I was. And I was like, that's it. We are changing this law. We are doing it now. We're getting the sign up ready. We're, and they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, we're we we pulling it back a minute. We're going to pray into this and we're going to ask God what he wants us to do. And I need that kind of very wise counsel accountability around me because I know my heart. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. I'm a seven. Mm-hmm. So like talking is my jam being with people is my jam. That whole shelter in place thing just about did me in. <laughs> um, but I'm also an eight. So I'm justice minded. So I see I mean, wrong. Yeah. I see the wrong challenge. and I'm like, no, this was a hard. No. And this is how we're going to fix it. And y'all are all going to get on board. Um, And so having that wise counsel, but then the other thing I've realized is for me, and I can really only speak into my experience here for me, when it is a true God calling, it is so not Jackie's idea. Like it was not my idea for my husband to quit his job when I was four months pregnant and start a ministry that we had no idea how to start. I mean, he's a veteran, he's former military. I'm a homeschool mom. Like we are not these like great theologians and you know, whatever else. And I'm thinking, but it was relentless. It was just this still small voice in my heart saying, do the next right thing. 
do the next right thing. And half the time, like, I don't even know what the next right thing is. And most of the time it was be quiet, <laughs> be still. And then I could hear him. Um, but if I, if I did not have these great friends that will speak truth to me, um, even when I don't want to hear it, um, I, I don't even know where I might be. We might be doing this and I might be like coming to you from the women's correctional facility. <laughs> um, so yeah, for sure that they keep me in line. And yeah, most of the stuff that God's really put on my heart, it, it sounds insane. And I'm like, yeah, that, that ain't Jackie. That's Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I have found myself. I really love that you said, you know, accountability, making sure you have people speaking into your life, whether you're seeing, you know, somebody that you trust that can hold you accountable for your own patterns and your own faults. And um, then once you get introspective enough to start having those questions of like, is this really God? Or is this me trying to control things? You know, I, I'm always like, I give it up. I go, we'll try giving it up. Yeah. Because when it's something that God wants me to do, I'm like, okay, my hands are moving. And like, there's no stopping it. You know, there, there, I couldn't, give it up if I wanted to, because there's no stopping. And that's yes. what I've experienced my callings where I was, people go, so Rebecca, how did you do that? And I'm like, I, I, I didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I just had a front row seat to it happening. <laughs> yeah. And s- sometimes lately, like I'm a new, I'm a new mom. Oh, okay. Congratulations. The time. So I have a, um, I have a three-month-old right now and a two-year-old. Oh, bless. And busy, busy. Sometimes I wake up at 3 a.m. and it's usually like a nursing session or something. Yeah. But then I can't get back to sleep. And so much like great stuff is flowing of like my next steps, clarity, all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, but I also need my sleep. Um, and I feel <laughs> like it's really aligned. I feel like it's God talking to me. I feel yeah. like it's like really good stuff. And I was thinking this morning, I was like, so why does this need to happen at three? And I was like, you probably don't rest or shut up or stop or pause long enough to allow him to speak. So when it's three and you're clear, he's like, you've allowed me an opening here finally. Oh, that is exactly it. Like I remember in 2019, Bonnie, our director of prayer told me that because I'm like, why does he always wake me up in the middle of the night? And then I'll get up and I can't, I I wrote our first book, our first devotional um, that we put out through the ministry was written entirely between like two in the morning and like, yeah, six in the morning. And then everyone would wake up and I'm, and she said, honey, you don't ever get quiet enough to hear him during the day. I'm in the busy of doing ministry and I forget that I need to listen. (laughs) I I need to listen to my marching orders. Um, so I have been trying really hard, very intentionally this year. Um, and so, you know, at, at some levels, the quarantining and the sheltering, maybe not so bad because it just gave an opportunity to take a step back. And I've tried to keep that with me this year because I like my sleep and I'm a much nicer, better mommy <laughs> when I'm getting good sleep. Um, but I've also know that there have been times where he's just been downloading and downloading and I, I can't type fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he will like redeem my rest. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I only got two and a half hours of sleep and you know, this one's up and this one has to get to the ENT and that one has therapy and whatever else is going on in our life. Um, because, you know, with four kids of different ages, there's just, there's always something. Um, 
but he will give me, it, it really feels like supernatural rest until I can get back into my rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, if I wake up and I'm in fear and controlling and worry and what if, what if, what if I'm a hot mess the next day. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, when I hear the word strategic prayer, it seems very action oriented. Yeah. And it sounds like there's really a piece of this um, where you also need to give the time for the contemplative prayer. You need to listen. Yeah. You need to sit and be quiet. There's like that time for rest and that time for downloading. But like you and I are saying, which it's difficult for us. Yeah. It is difficult for a lot of Americans in our culture, people to, to pause and to allow that time to come through and to make sure you're connecting. Um, but so, so important. Yeah, it, it really is. And I mean, this is, and I am saying this, like, here I am. I am not like super holy and super wise. Like this is come out of our own felt need. And it's also come out of my experience of trying to do it in my own ability and my own steam. And then watching how, when, I mean, and I will tell you, God will put me in big timeouts. I have been on bed rest more as a adult woman than I can think of anyone. Like, I feel like I'm almost like a newborn sometimes of like, yep. So here I am. I'm on bed rest again for a week. Nope. Now I'm going to be on bed rest for six. I just had a, a surgery this summer that most people bounce back from in about a week and a half, two weeks, eight straight weeks down. And so it's like, God's like, okay, medical timeout. And now you can go nowhere. You can't drive. You're in your, so it's just me and you. Um, so I, I have realized as I've gotten older, the value of that much more than just looking busy, doing these things that a lot of what it is, is just, okay, I need to take a step back. I need to reflect. I need to have that wise counsel speaking into it. And then I know what I'm really, what my next right thing, because I was trying to do all of the things and like the advocacy, the speaking, this is my lane. My husband is the technology and the media. That's his lane. And so I can't be in everyone's lane. I can't, you know, hoe your row. I was trying to hoe everybody's row. I can't do that. (laughs) And God's plan was never for it to be unsustainable. Oh, yes. Goodness. (laughs) We should have talked a couple years ago. I needed that wisdom (laughs) in my life because you will hit a wall and it hurts. Yeah. The, that difference between doing and being mm-hmm. learning it every day. Oh yeah. And, and I think motherhood really does that. I mean, I don't care how you became a mom, if it's a bio, if it's a stepmom, if you're a foster mom, whatever, it just humbles you. And you're like, wow, I need rest. I need people. Yeah. I need prayer for the sake of my children. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, I love that. This has been really, you know, I, we had joked or I kind of joked saying like, if you're willing to have this brave conversation um, in email prior, because I think that, you know, just like you said, religion scares people away. Uh, You know, I have insecurities about if I let this person on the podcast, does it mean that we don't honor other people? Does it, but I felt like this spirituality is such a huge, huge, um, portion of people's lives Mm -hmm. that to not call it out and talk about it and have these conversations and say like, you know, how do you incorporate your spiritual practice in the way you show up for others? Because that's, that is God's work, right? 
Exactly. So it makes it makes a lot of sense. And I'm I'm really happy that you were willing to take the time. So for people that want to know more about Ignite Hope, want to know more about how to learn about strategic prayer, how to do it, um, just where where should they go? Um, if you would go to Ignite Hope dot online and it is online so i want to make sure to underline ignitehope.online um we have um some of our resources on there we have um what we are called to do kind of an about us section um but there's also at the top it says info at ignitehope.online and that is our general ministry email if you are interested in becoming a prayer giver um then we are ready and willing to train you like our biggest prayer through 2020 was lord you know the harvest is plenty but the workers are few mm -hmm. and with everything that families and kids and especially at-risk families and kids have experienced in the last 18 months we are about to have an influx of kids coming into the system and we need to be ready to support them to support the families that care for them to support the families that are working to get their lives on track so they can bring them back home and um so info at ignitehope.online, absolutely go there. And then on the front of our website, there is our newsletter and um, sign up for that because you'll you'll find out what we're working on either legislatively or event wise or how we're helping. And and we work nationally because of technology and digital. It doesn't matter if you're a foster dad in California or you're a foster youth aging out in Wyoming, like we are here for you because we can be which is super awesome. And um, then we're also on Facebook. Um, uh, I hope for the number four orphans and um, we're sharing resources. Like I said, we're a bridge. So our heart's desire is just to connect all of those who are called into this space with the areas where they can serve or be served. Beautiful. Well, I'm gonna have all those links in the show notes and then i'll of course tag you on all the socials so that people can easily find you but this has been amazing i love that it's also national um hopefully your legislation in georgia not only gets traction but maybe is uh model legislation and can get some federal dollars that'd be incredible that that like i said we're, we're praying into that so you know we need more prayer warriors to pray for that that in for these kids yeah yeah this is beautiful i've really really enjoyed this conversation thank, uh, you. thank you so much oh i've enjoyed it too and thank you again for inviting me on i'm very honored Right, guys thanks for tuning in to another episode of the stable moments podcast i thought jackie was just so special to talk to glad people like her exist as always if this was a helpful episode share it with people leave a rating and review on apple Podcasts, and join us for the conversation in the stable moments podcast facebook group i will see you guys next month